Welcome to GovCast. I am your host, Managing Editor Amy Kluber. Today we're diving into the Army Cyber Institute, the Army's think tank, with Academy Professor Natalie Venata, who also leads a national cyber protection team. The Institute is a national resource for anyone in or out of government to build intellectual capital and expand the knowledge base for effective Army cyber defense and cyber operations. Somehow, as you'll hear, graphic novellas come into play. It's true. Let's hear it. Natalie, thanks for joining us on GovCast. It's nice to have you. Super excited. Thanks for inviting me. What is it like working for a think tank? The best experience ever, because I just get to think every day. I get to use my experiences and my expertise, my time in the Army, my time in academia, and I just get to think about the future and what we need to be doing today in order to create a better future for tomorrow. You received a PhD and a master's in applied mathematics and systems engineering from the Naval Postgraduate School. What initially sparked your interest in this field, particularly in science and technology? Oh, my family. Uh, We grew up in a household that absolutely embraced science and mathematics. My mom was an army nurse and my dad was an ordnance officer. And really, he was just a tinkerer at heart and the biggest reader ever given to him from his mother. And so we used to be surrounded by books, fun books, not so fun books in the house. And really, it was that culture in the family. And in fact, I remember the day I decided I was going to become an engineer. I was 10 years old, and I thought my life was ending. Like all my dreams were going out the window because I had gone to a doctor's appointment that morning to the eye doctor. My father pulled me out of school for it. And I had the most amazingly horrible news that day that I was going to need glasses. And I remember after this appointment, my dad took us to grab a slice of pizza at the shopping center on post and trying to console me because as a 10-year-old, I saw my life was over because my dream was to be an astronaut. (laughs) And it was all crumbling before me because back then you had to be 2020 non-corrected. And I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And after a few minutes, my father just looked at me and he's like, okay, Natalie, but now you get to do something even cooler. And I just looked at him. I'm like, what in the world could be cooler than being the pilot of a shuttle as an astronaut? And he's like, but now you can be the flight engineer. And it's not just you're shuttling people like a big school bus back and forth in and out of space. Like you're responsible for it all and you can do experiments. And being the engineer on the flight, you're still an astronaut, but an even more difficult job. So you can solve challenges and puzzles. And I was like, wow. And you could do that with 2020 corrective vision. And I'm like, that was it. That's for me. I'm going to be an engineer. Made that decision then. Unfortunately, I've not yet gotten into space yet, but <laughs> definitely the engineering track. There's still time. There is. <laughs> <laughs> there is. So why the Army? That was the way I was raised. I loved growing up as affectionately known as an Army brat. We lived all over the U.S. and Europe growing up. I got to see so many different cultures and meet different people. And the history that we learn about in the classroom, I got to see unfold and see some of these places growing up. It taught me so much tolerance and the ability to look at the world in a different view and accept what others, um, how they look at the world differently. And I think it just makes me a much better problem solver overall. I can really relate to that as an Army brat myself. I think my least favorite question is, where are you from? Can you relate to that? Totally. (laughs) I have no clue where I'm from. I think over the course of my life, I've now moved 18 different times, uh, all to different states and uh, different countries in Europe. Uh, My parents live in different locations. Uh, My sister is scattered out, too. So 
I don't know where home is. Uh, I prefer to think about it as home is everywhere. That's a good thing to think, really. You also have an extensive background working government and today have met your 18-year mark in the military. But how did you get started in government to begin with? Why did you decide that was the career for you? It absolutely goes back to growing up in the family that I did and the culture and selfless service. And so for me, it was a really easy decision that I wanted to give back. And the easiest thing for me was to join the Army and be able to do that. And I've just been blessed over the 18 years that I have had to go amazing places and do amazing things, not just within the Army or the Department of Defense, but kind of throughout government to give me a wide range of experiences. At the Army Cyber Institute specifically, you have focused on a foresight process called threat casting. Can you go into what that's all about? Absolutely. So threat casting is a process that we developed with Brian David Johnson out of Arizona State University. And it's a process ground in science fact, but flavored by science fiction that lets us think about what the future is going to look like. It is really difficult as human beings to try to imagine what the future is because either we only want to think a couple years from now because it makes sense. It's the evolution of what we are currently doing. Or we're imagining a 100 years in the future and we're flying through space and we've solved faster than light travel and we're colonizing distant galaxies. And we really have a hard time thinking anything in the middle. And so that's what threat casting does is we bring together a very diverse group of individuals, uh, thinkers and doers, people from across government and academia and the military, private industry, think tanks, the public sector, to really start thinking about what the future will look like, because the future is not going to be based on whatever is the next latest, greatest trend out of Silicon Valley, but it's going to be based on a whole confluence of different things. So we start by looking at society as a whole and how we think society is going to evolve over the next 10 years, how cultures are going to change, how the communities we relate to will change, and more importantly, how our relationships with others and how we define ourselves is going to change. And then we look at technology and we pick some technology that we think is just about to leave the R&D shop and start to be seen in the next 10 years. And we look at how that technology started and its initial purpose, but really in that future we've envisioned of how society has changed in a decade, how it's actually going to be used. And we look at economics also at the macro and micro level to see how are we going to be able to support the kind of life that we are going to want using this technology as society has evolved. And through this whole process with a bunch of science fiction flavored into it, we imagine what the world is going to look like in a decade. And from there, we're able to start picking through it and seeing where the unintended consequences of our actions today have led us, where the vulnerabilities or the gaps and seams in the fabric of our life that have developed because of how these different influences have occurred. And then how could a nefarious individual or group, how that malicious actor can take advantage of it? Because Ultimately, it's human nature. We're not going to be able to get rid of that. And so from there, so now we have this world and we focus not on this huge magnitude of a problem, but we focus on just a single person in a place living their life. Maybe it's John Smith, a fisherman in Bangor, Maine, and how he lives and operates in this world with everything going on and how he would be vulnerable or his community or his family would be vulnerable in the future. And then the really important thing is because we've brought together these experts from across society and across demographics as we start thinking about what are the things we need to do today 
and five years from now and eight years from now to ensure that that future that we have imagined, if it's a negative future, doesn't happen. And it's what can government start doing? What can academia start researching? What can private industry start doing? What can communities start doing? And more importantly, what can individuals start doing today? Because for us, it's about envisioning the future in order to empower change today to ensure that if those negative futures, we can either figure out how to disrupt, mitigate, and recover from them, or if they're positive futures, we can figure out how to bring them in even sooner to our lives. What can we do today? Great question. Uh, a lot of it is just education. I think at many times the mass media gets stuck on a hype word or stuck on a trend and at times blows it out of the water. And for folks that are potentially not as technologically savvy or enjoy technology as much, it becomes a scary thing instead. Um, and I think educating yourself and educating your family and, and educating your community goes a long way to getting us prepared for what the, the future will look like. And you mentioned painting a story or getting science fiction involved. Is this where the graphic novella comes into play? Absolutely. So remember, I'm also an academic. And so like we run these threat casting sessions and we get all this data and all these amazing ideas from amazing individuals that, that participate with us. And so we put it together in a report. And so we take all that raw data. And we sit with a couple futurists and we, we turn the crank on it a few times and we get all our facts straight and we show all our proof that this is truly could happen and how these things could actually help. We model the future. It's super excited. We put it in this big technical report. It's like 200 pages <laughs> with all these footnotes and it's glorious. And I publish it and I'm not even sure my mother has read it. And so remember, we're trying to empower individuals to change. And so I'm like, okay, well, this is good. I'm an academic. This is okay. So we started writing pieces for academic journals, like 20 pages packed full of good information. And, you know, who reads academic journals? Well, fellow academics. And so that's not really getting to the larger society problem. And so we wrote in some trade journals. And I'm like, this is great. It's like six pages. There's pictures. And people started reading. But then we decided, how do I capture people's attention to give them a vision of the future to really inspire them, not necessarily to think about how I would fix things, but to inspire them to think about how they would want to fix things. And that's when we came up with the idea of graphic novellas. So short comic books, we're calling them graphic novellas because we're all adults here, so we can't <laughs> call them comic books anymore. Um, but that we use in just four pages, working with uh, some really amazing science fiction writers and some graphic novel illustrators that work for big name companies to help us give that story in a mere four pages of pictures that people can read to put them in that future. And then followed by a afterward and a forward, really giving them the questions that now we want them to start talking about. And we have found that has been a great success, that people really enjoy that. And it really stimulates conversation amongst their peers and amongst their organization to think about what play they could have in either ensuring a negative future doesn't happen or helping to enable the positive futures to happen. And of course, if that's too much, if that just takes too much time flipping the page three times and <laughs> looking at pretty pictures, we also turned a couple of them into animated movies. So we animated them. So you just have to go to YouTube and hit the button and it plays. And three minutes later, you also have the experience of this future that we're thinking about. Wow. So paint a picture for me what some of those look like. Well, in one of our threat casting sessions uh, that we did, we really focused on the supply chain and how we think in the future that maybe supply chains could be weaponized against us. Uh, and what was interesting is all the work and research we did 
and published in our report, uh, turns out Cisco got very excited on the work we were doing. And because all of our work is public knowledge, we freely want to share it because we want to change people's minds. and We want to engender other people to start thinking about it and making change. They took the base work we did and turned it into a graphic novella called Two Days After Tuesday to get them to start thinking about what they could do. And in fact, they took it and ran a two-day workshop where they inspired individuals to figure out how, from a Cisco perspective, they could ensure that this negative future didn't happen. And in fact, they actually gave a couple startup companies their first round of funding based on the ideas that they came up with in that workshop. And so Cisco very graciously let us publish and release it to the public. On the same time, we took that same idea of weaponizing the supply chain and not thinking about it of how it could affect society at large, but specifically how it could affect the military. And we created a graphic novella called 102527 as a day to remember to show both sides to the coin, because really the challenges we are going to face in the cyber or the digital domain over the next 10 years are not solutions that any one organization or one community can solve. It's going to take all of us looking at the problem and working together to do it. And so this just enabled us to show it's the same problem, but this is how it might look to different people within society, but it is ultimately the exact same problem we all have to solve. What are some of the agencies that are working with the Army Cyber Institute on some of these things? Because you mentioned the collaboration is that important. Who are some of your existing partners? So we have partners across academia and also across the government that have worked on threat casting with us. We've also done threat casting with different organizations. Obviously, from the Army Cyber Institute perspective, we're really focused on the threats and the challenges we're going to face in the cyber domain in the next three to 10 years. But we've also worked with other government agencies to use threat casting and show them how it can help on their problems that they're looking for. And... As your position as a professor, you kind of have a lot to do with teaching some of this stuff to people who are just getting into this field. How important is the workforce here in educating them on how important cyber protection is? I think it's a challenge we have across a government and across industry in general is educating folks on why this is so important and that these are not just silly rules that some IT geek with glasses sitting in the basement came up with just to make your life more difficult, that there's really a reason why we do it. And I think part of that is a failing on our side, you know, on the IT, the the cyber industry is that we don't explain well. We just say, hey, user, you must do this. And we don't care how it affects your effectiveness at work or your efficiency. We just tell you to do this. And we don't take the time to explain a little bit of why. And that's because it's absolute failing on our end, because I think many times we just assume, well, we're just so wicked smart. We're just so uber cool. And the rest of everyone, well, they're not as cool as us because we've set ourselves on this pedestal because we are cyber professionals, right? And we're the cutting edge and bleeding edge. And we sometimes make this assumption as well. Users are just dumb. They wouldn't understand it. So we're just going to tell them what to do. And so I think where we really need to go forward is educating everyone on the reason why we do things. And more importantly, from a technology perspective, right, as we look at the next generation of technology and what's happening, I think as designers, as researchers, as scientists, as engineers, what we need to be thinking about is that the human has to be first. When we design technology and we race to market because we had this really cool idea and we want to get it patented and we want all the credit of this next cool thing that's going to take off, 
uh, we don't stop and think about the human, the user that's going to do it. And instead, when we start using that technology in a different way than was initially engendered in, as an idea, and all of a sudden that opens up these vulnerabilities and these security gaps, we just expect the human to change. We expect society to change, right? We tell the human, don't click on that link in that email you don't know. Bad human, bad human for clicking that. Instead of understanding it's human nature, we're not going to change that. Instead, we should think about designing policies and designing processes and software and hardware that embraces the fact we're not going to change human nature overnight, but how can we protect ourselves instead? What kind of technologies are at play here that could perhaps fill some of those gaps? Great question. Like, I hope there's technology coming out shortly. I think part of the problem is there's just not enough of an emphasis on that that's important is really where we struggle to actually protect ourselves. And everyone is focused on, well, what's the next great thing coming along? And I think what it's going to have to take is a complete mental shift as we think about the value that we have started to place on technology, because technology truly is disruptive at the moment, and we're not used to that. If you think about how technology has changed, right? So if you look at electricity, from the time that that was an idea to the time it was in commonplace in middle America's houses, decades and decades and decades. So we were able to go with it. If you think about the microwave, from the time it was just an idea to the time it was small enough that it was in everybody's house, and therefore it was going to influence and change how we as a society and a culture lived, because we had these other options on how to prepare food and the types of food then that we started to eat, that's about 25 years. If we look at the smartphone, from the time it was an idea until the time it was in everybody's hands, revolutionizing how we receive and can do information, that was about seven years. Social media from its idea till it's in everybody's hands was about two years. And so the problem is that the span of how technology goes from idea to the time it is embedded into our society and is changing us as a community and as a culture has shortened so much that it all becomes very reactive. There's no time to think and plan for how we do this safely and how we protect ourselves in the cyber domain. And that is the struggle that we are in and the fight we're in right now is staying up with the pace at which technology is being adapted. And that's why I would say technology today is disruptive, not because of what it's doing, but the impact it's having on our lives and our inability to stay up and keep pace with ensuring that we're protecting the human and society as we roll these things out. So in addition to threat casting, or, or maybe it's a subset of it, what are some of the projects that you are tackling as part of this currently? Well, the great thing about the Army Cyber Institute is we're charged to think three to 10 years in the future to think about the cyber challenges um, that we are going to face as an army. And as I said earlier, it's the same challenges we're going to face in society. And there's that's such a broad field. There are just so many things to pick and choose from that you want to work on. And so some of the work that I've been looking at lately is artificial intelligence and no, I'm internally cringing because there's lots of discussion right now. Will artificial intelligence ever get here? Is what we're calling AI today really just advanced machine learning? Uh, but what I've been looking at is what comes next. And more importantly, how could our adversaries uh, start to weaponize the development of AI against us, taking a long, slow look at where it will be 50 years from now and how potentially could they be influencing what we are doing today and the science that we are developing today and the processes we are developing today to be able to use it against us in the future. Hmm. 
That's interesting you say that because it seems like it's a very polar topic. There's the people who are like, yeah, AI, and it's great, and it's going to help us solve all these problems. But from your point of view, it might present more problems. It could if we're not thinking about it from a holistic view. And I think this also goes back to just the mass media also just talks a lot about it, potentially without the scientific rigor uh, that many in the community really believe. And it goes back to the how many people enjoy reading academic journals about the latest and greatest that doesn't capture people's attention. So it's really us figuring out from an academic and a research, a science community that the ideas we're developing and the technology that we're bringing about, truly we can explain it better to the world on, on where it's really going. So what is next for you? Today you marked your 18-year anniversary with the military. That's a long time. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, but time flies when you're having fun. And I have had an amazing 18 years so far and plan to have uh, a few more at least, definitely, as long as the Army needs me. Because I've just been truly blessed with this career of not only being able to operate at tactical, strategic, and operational levels, doing a job I love, working with some of the most amazing men and women um, out there to, to accomplish our mission. Uh, but also then the Army has given me these, I will say, breaks uh, to be able just to pause and think about it all and to work uh, in the think tank that I'm currently part of to figure out how to use all this expertise and experience I've had to think about where we need to be going in the future. Well, thank you for joining us, Natalie. This was a great discussion, and I um, am very much looking forward to some of your projects that you're working on in the future, and I'll probably have to go check out some of those graphic novellas and Please videos. do. They're totally awesome sauce. And more importantly, I'd ask you as you take a look at them and read them and think about, well, what does that mean for you? And how would this change your life? And more importantly, what could we start doing to ensure it doesn't happen or happen? And I would love to get any of that feedback. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced and hosted by Amy Kluber. Edited by Chris Edwards. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.